1: Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, After what I think many people will agree was a somber, uh, revealing and at times emotional first night of hearings uh, by the January 6th uh, committee, I'm very, very happy to say we have a panel of outstanding journalists to uh, break down what they saw as they watched the hearings last night, to talk about what um, they see coming up in the weeks ahead, and about George's role in all of this, which was displayed very prominently uh, last night. Uh, we'll talk about a couple of other important stories in the political world as well. Let me get right to the panel. It's Friday, which means my partner is former AJC political columnist Jim Galloway. Uh, Jim, thanks for being here today.
2: No, I wouldn't have missed this one. Uh, we have a lot to talk about.
1: Yeah, we sure do. Uh, Tia Mitchell uh, is with us as well. Of course, she's the Washington reporter for the AJC. And Tia, I'm especially glad that you having worked, I'm sure, a very late night last night to file your story on the testimony of Caroline Edwards, which we'll get to in a little while. Thank you for uh, spending some time with us this morning. It's good to have you here.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: We're also joined by Margaret Coker, who you all know is the editor-in-chief of The Current, based in Savannah, Georgia, a digital news uh, publication which uh, deals with news along the coast uh, but also takes up uh, news uh, statewide. Margaret, um you've had experience, you we know your background, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, you've worked uh, as a journalist internationally. Um, and you, of course, worked for Cox at one point in your career. What I don't know, and I, 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 this sort of thing I don't usually ask, like to ask, Amir, were, were you ever based in Washington? Did you have that Washington experience?
4: Yeah, I, I started my career there. I actually have um, the, um, one of the, the – in my, in my early life, I was covering uh, the Treasury, the Federal Reserve, macroeconomic indicators. I spent a lot of time in house committee hearings like the one we heard from last
1: night all right well good i mean that's very very helpful for our listeners to uh, know as we talk about putting this whole thing in perspective and charlie Hazelet uh is with us he is now the blogger uh, of a great blog trouble in god's country which uh, in which charlie you uh try to bring to us news about what's happening particularly in rural parts of the state but you too at one point, covered Washington when you were a part of the uh, Cox uh, uh, newspaper group.
5: I I, I did, and um, I guess the lesson there is live long enough and you'll do almost all of these things at one time or another. But I appreciate the chance to be back here and look forward to the program. Um,
1: So let's start by talking. I'm going to ask each of you to just give me your quick first impressions of the most important things that you took out of the hearings last night. Let me give you just a, a quick rundown of what I, I, I think um, are some of the central points <clears throat> that the committee made. One, Trump was at the center of this entire plot. He lit the fuse starting in the days after the election when he began calling it fraudulent. That eventually led to the insurrection. That is what the committee is going to present evidence and already has started presenting evidence to try to prove. Um, We learned from them that key figures around Trump, who did testify before the committee in closed hearings, they they never believed that the election had been stolen. Trump was told by these people that Biden won the election fair and square. The committee uh, has evidence that the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers actually mounted an organized effort in advance not, this was not a spontaneous uh, riot, according to what the uh, committee has learned. This was a planned effort. Um, and we've also uh, heard from the committee that there are some of the, the uh, people they talked with, it, it, witnesses they, uh, they took testimony from, that Trump's appointees worried that he was unfit to govern. They were worried about leaving him alone. Uh, because they weren't sure what he was going to do. So those are just a few of the things that I mean. There were so many points that were made last night. Jim, give us your quick take on what stood out for you.
2: Well, number one, I, I guess the first thing would be is is just the the, the, the clear reliance on Trump uh, Trump administration voices. To make to make the case, I mean, you had Bill Barr there uh, 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 calling BS. If you you pardon me the the uh, the, the language here on uh, on on the uh, election on on Trump's claim that he had won uh, his daughter Ivanka, just a very very brief clip saying that she she believed Barr, uh, and then I think it was the the finance director. Uh, the other thing that struck me was the just the, the the incredible media war that this is going to be I mean this was a this was a probably the, the, the best produced congressional hearing that I've ever watched. I mean it kept they kept it to a very very distinct timetable. They limited the voices uh, uh, of, uh, of, of the people of the the members of Congress there were only two speakers. there was Benny Thompson there then then uh, there was uh, Liz Cheney and that was it. Uh, and and then you got you have you have to look at uh, the uh, I don't want to call it counter pro- uh, programming, but the uh, the effort that Fox made, no commercials during that those that those two solid hours, just so it could keep hold on on its audience. It, we're, we're in we're in for a very very interesting media war. I think.
1: I think that's right, Margaret. Give us your first impressions of last night.
4: Yeah. You know, it's it's been um, a strange time to be an American, right, where we see our capital under attack on January 6th. But, you know, we our our country works best. And I think it's designed to work when we have two two parties who are 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 working in, in rational ways in order to make legislation and make our lives better. What stood out to me last night was that the, uh, the Republican Party seems to be getting a national reckoning now when you have uh, the Republican representative who is taking charge of the hearings, Liz Cheney, who is finally trying to hold to account some of her colleagues who she believes and um, evidence suggests were part of, of the uprising on January 6th. I think America is going to be better off when the GOP gets, uh, has, that, has that reckoning among its own members.
1: As long as you mentioned that, why don't we listen to what Liz Cheney said to members of her own uh, party, and then we'll keep our conversation going. Uh, Natalie, we want to play that sound.
0: In our country, we don't swear an oath to an individual or a political party. We take our oath to defend the United States Constitution, and that oath must mean something. Tonight, I say this to my Republican colleagues who are defending the indefensible. There will come a day when Donald Trump is gone, but your dishonor will remain.
1: Powerful statement. Um, Charlie Hazlett, um, share with us your uh, uh, takeaways, your observations from last night.
5: Well, um, first of all, I'm glad you played that clip. I think it was probably the single most um, potent, powerful soundbite of the night. Um, And I think it will it will ring for a while. Uh, beyond that, my, my reaction sort of took me back to my days after journalism as a speechwriter. And one of the things you learn is you know, when you're writing a speech, tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, and then tell them what you told them. And last night, they, they were telling us what they're going to tell us with some really juicy teasers thrown in. Uh, they did a great job, I thought, of framing what was to come, of uh, setting the stage, truth is, and I, maybe I follow this stuff more closely than a lot of folks and have read a good many of the books, I want a ton of, of really new news, but there were some awfully good and juicy teasers in there. I've got to believe that various members of the media are, are trying to figure out which GOP members were seeking, were seeking pardons before Trump left office. I'd like to know what pardons Jared was working on. And I'm I'm, I wonder about the conversations Ivanka's having with her dad. So, um, but you know, but but there's there's a lot of of fresh meat out there that folks will be chasing.
1: We did learn last night that there were some um, members of Congress, Republican members, who hope to get pardons from the White House for uh, any possible vulnerabilities they might have uh, exposed themselves to in terms of the. uh, efforts to promote the false theory that Trump actually won the election. Tia, I saved you for last because uh, you filed a story overnight about the <laughs> riveting testimony of Caroline Edwards, Georgia woman, Capitol Hill police officer, young, uh, uh, believed to have been the first officer injured in the attacks, and um, and, and, and I want you to, if you would, f- talk to us a little bit about what you thought as you watched Caroline Edwards uh, give her very emotional firsthand testimony of what happened on the front lines of the attack.
3: Well, it was so interesting being in the room because where, I, where the media was sitting, the committee and Caroline Edwards were kind of in front of us But there were about two dozen members of the House, mostly Democrats. We didn't see any Republican members, but they were all behind us. So, of course, while Officer Edwards was testifying, I was looking to the front, and not only was she given this really emotional, graphic, emotional testimony, graphic details about police officers being beaten down, bloodied. She said they were vomiting. That's just they're just how the body reacts to being physically attacked. She also talked about her own injury. Um, a bike rat fell on her head and she fell back and she hit her head on a concrete stairs and lost consciousness um, at the early start of the riot. Then she blacked out, woke back up, fueled by adrenaline, went back to the front line. And um, so it was just so riveting, you know. I know um, we already have like a a nominee for the most riveting testimony of the day, but I would like to nominate uh, Officer Edwards as well. And I'll wrap by saying, you know, so after she finished talking, um, she was one of the last people to speak. So a few minutes later, the hearing ended. And for the first time, I turned around and looked behind me. And those members of Congress were still um, wiping their faces. Their eyes were red because many of them had been crying throughout the hearing um, because this is not just, you know, watching it, the attack on the democracy. This was an attack on them in every literal sense of the word. And many of them, not only were they, you know, fearful for their lives, and, you know, maybe hiding in their office or in the abstract feeling attacked, many of them were in that last group trapped in the House chamber while it was being surrounded by insurrectionists. So there was, you know, a very real and imminent threat to their lives, and they had to relive some of that last night. So even seeing how they were affected um, was just a reminder of the magnitude of what happened on January 6th
1: um thank you for that summary just just because it's helpful uh uh to to get a sense of exactly how caroline edwards came across let's listen to just a short portion of the way she described her involvement in the attacks in the att- effort to defend against the attacks
4: what i saw was just a, a war scene it, it was something like i would seen out of the movies I I couldn't believe my eyes. There were officers on the ground. They were bleeding. They were throwing up. I I mean, I saw friends with blood all over their faces. I was slipping in people's blood. You know, I I was catching people as they fell. You know, I was, it was carnage. It was chaos. I, I I can't even, describe what I saw.
1: That's uh, Caroline Edwards. Uh, By the way, uh, we should also point out, Jim, that uh, Caroline Edwards was right by Brian Sicknick, um, the officer who died, uh, had two strokes uh, in the aftermath of the assault and uh, died a day after the attacks. And she described, Jim, how she turned to him at one point and she said he was never seen anybody as ghostly pale. She held up a sheet of paper, white paper, and said this was the color of his uh, skin. And behind um, her was Brian Sicknick's partner, uh, a Widow. Uh, who watched uh, uh, the testimony, she was crying. Other Capitol Hill police officers, several, were also behind her. It it was just an unbelievably emotional scene. And, Jim, it was crucial because I think many people believe that it's easy to put that whole thing behind us and to have forgotten uh, the ferocity of what happened that day.
2: Right, right, and and, and this is but and this is where the I think the, the, the subtlety of the, the TV production kicks in. I mean, we have had we've had uh, Capitol Police officers testify time and time again uh, in, in the eighteen months previous. Uh, I'm blanking on the, the, the fellow who has quit the force, but he has he has uh, he has a beard, lots of tattoos. This this was a fresh face. <laughs> it was a fresh face, and it was a female face, and I think that's I, I think that's very very important. Uh, and, and, and what she said, what she, what she said was being heard for the first time. And I, I think that, that's part of this effort to, 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 to give the American audience something they haven't heard before.
1: Um, Margaret, we also got hints. There's Caroline Edwards, a Georgia native, in the first hearing, playing that crucial role for, for the committee. Uh, but we also heard uh, that um, George is going to be terribly important in the uh, hearings to come, the six or so hearings that are still ahead. Let's uh, listen to Liz Cheney again describing uh, what George's role is going to be in these hearings.
0: In our fifth hearing, you will see evidence that President Trump corruptly pressured state legislators and election officials to change election results. You will hear additional details about President Trump's call to Georgia officials, urging them to quote, find 11,780 votes, votes that did not exist, and his efforts to get states to rescind certified electoral slates without factual basis and contrary to law. You will hear new details about the Trump campaign and other Trump associates efforts to instruct Republican officials in multiple states to create intentionally false electoral slates and transmit those slates to Congress, to the Vice President and the National Archives, falsely certifying that Trump won states he actually lost.
1: So Margaret, uh, two different uh, examples uh, Brian Raffensberger uh, part of that that infamous phone call now just find me 11,000 plus votes and then the fake slate of electors that David Schaefer the chairman of the Georgia Republican Party organized to send uh, to the National Archives another uh, member of that fake slate Burt Jones who is now the Republican candidate for lieutenant governor so it's not a surprise to us but we heard it very specifically. Georgia will be a major, major uh, part of these investigations.
4: Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of of detective novels, and you know, uh, there's, there's some very, very um, effective plots that detective uh, stories have. Right? You sort of start on the the night in question, um, and you move up to find out who actually done it. Well, you know, I think that that the House Committee has has described how they're going to start back on, on election day and move their way through the two months of intrigue. And that um, has has Georgia as a starring uh, in a starring role. You know, on the day after the elections, uh, the Trump campaign started filing lawsuits in the state of Georgia, Chatham County, where we're based, of course, is the first lawsuit filed in Georgia. And we move all the way up to, to January 6th. And in between, we have um, senior Georgia uh, Republican Party leaders who are going to come under the spotlight. And we've talked about um, all of their roles um, multiple times on, on Rewind, but it's it's just not um, this stuff is just not going to go away. It's not going to be shoved shut in the closet or um, pushed under the rug. You know, we're going to have a, a real reckoning. People are going to have to explain their actions for those two months at the end of 2020 into 2021. And I think it's going to be embarrassing. It's going to be embarrassing for, for people like Bert Jones, like you mentioned, who's won his primary. He is going to be under fire all summer long about whether or not he broke the law or, or bent his oath towards uh, the Constitution as an elected official from Georgia and voters are voters are going to have a chance to um, to weigh back in and see whether like they did on primary night whether they agree with that branch of the Georgia Republican Party or they agree with another branch of the Georgia Republican Party
1: yeah. We, we, we know that they're going to now head, hear testimony from Brad Raffensperger and and, uh, and others in the Secretary of State's office in the fifth hearing. I don't think we know exactly what that date will be uh, at this point. Charlie, uh, I want to ask you a question. Margaret said she's a fan of mysteries, detective novels. And, uh, of course, as a, it, it, I thought there was an interesting uh, sort of uh, take on the detective story last night as the committee talked about the timeline of The insurrectionists and and one of the things they pointed out was that even before Donald Trump began his speech uh, at, 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 at the ellipse uh, urging people to fight back the proud boys were already marching down Pennsylvania Avenue to the Capitol and they made the point that while while people like the proud boys could say they came there to hear Trump to be able to support him, to rally around him. The fact of the matter is, their plan was already in motion. Law, I think, at ten thirty in the morning, and Trump didn't speak until at least an hour later. I thought that was a tick-tock that really tells us something.
5: And, and I agree. And I, and actually, I think that's sort of emblematic of what I think we're going to find out uh, was happening at large. And what I mean by that is, I think we're going to find out that the, the planning. For what turned out to be January 6, began well before the election, well before November 6. They had every reason to believe that they would not win. Um, Trump was was salting the field with 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 early charges of election fraud, um, and I think all those things were in motion uh, well before well before the election, and they just began implementing it. I have, um, uh, when Esper quit and, uh, or was fired and, uh, and Trump uh, sent, um, uh, now I can't think of his name, the new defense secretary and Kash and Patel to the Pentagon, A, it was clear that these were not guys who ought to be running the military, and that they were basically political hacks. And uh, I posted on Facebook, these guys don't look like they're planning to go anywhere, um, and I don't think they, they, they were not, um, I, I, it's, it's chilling to think about how close they came to succeeding. So, yeah, I think that, that we're going to see a lot of those moving parts, um, uh, begin to fall into place and the elements of the mystery, uh, as, as Margaret put it, fall into place. So t-
1: t- there's more to come. Tia, t- t- i apologize for interrupting at the end there um tia i think your presence in the room uh and your observations you made were really valuable to us because i think you made an important point you said that you and your colleagues didn't identify a single republican member uh, who attended the hearings I, i understand the republicans have a counter narrative that they're going to the house certainly kevin mccarthy and house leaders republican house leaders are going to be making But the fact that not a single Republican member even wanted to be there to witness this testimony strikes me as um, really worth talking a little about.
3: Yeah, and it's interesting. I caught up with um, U.S. Rep. Rick Allen, a Republican from Augusta, earlier in the week. And I asked him, you know... For the record, the House adjourned early on Thursday. So most members of both parties had already flown back home or driven back home by the time the hearing began at 8 p.m. You had those roughly two dozen Democrats who, like, deliberately stayed behind for the hearing. So I just want to point that out that most of the House, both political parties were not there. But those who chose to be there, who made plans to be there, looked to all be Democrats Anyways, I was talking to Representative Allen, and he said he did plan to watch from home, but he was basically watching to see if some of the Republican narratives that run counter to what we know to be true would possibly be validated. For example, he brought up, you know, I want to know why the National Guard wasn't called. And, you know, he alluded to perhaps Nancy Pelosi or Washington Mayor Bowser, you know, choosing not to prepare for the violence. And what came out last night was that, number one, it's the president's role to call the National Guard. Um, And that on January 6th, Trump did not. It was Vice President Pence who was begging and pleading for the National Guard. So, um, you know, a lot of what Republicans, as they try to create a counter-narrative about this committee and its work and about the riot. Um, what came out last night does not uphold that counter-narrative, but what we've seen, and even in real time, what I saw, in, like on social media, was just this fervent attempt by Republicans to create a counter-narrative that is not rooted in fact or truth.
1: Jim, I was struck, too, by uh, Tia's interview with Rick Allen the other day in which he said what he'd be watching for us, whether they were going to talk about Na- what did they investigate why Nancy Pelosi uh, didn't uh, uh, assure that the National Guard would be called in. And as I tr- changed around channels last night to see what Fox News was doing. I heard Tucker Carlson uh, talking about that same narrative, painting a picture that it was in fact uh, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi who were responsible for the failures uh, for, of of the uh, uh, at the Capitol to bring in National Guard to protect them. But Jim, go ahead.
2: No, no, actually, I, I just wanted to ask, ask Tia uh, just a, a question. Just Tia, if, if, if you could describe the security situation. That was that was at the US Capitol and and the surrounding area last night because I'm, I'm assuming I'm, I'm assuming that uh, 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 it, it was it was a pretty high uh, the, the security level was pretty high.
3: So it the security level of the room was very high. Um, you had to have the right credentials to get into the hearing room. Um, I feel like the building um, where the hearing was held was pretty secure. But overall, it was pretty, seemed pretty regular, you know, regular for the new normal post-January 6th security around the Capitol. Um, But the room was very secure for that second half when they went from um, Chairman Thompson and Chairman Cheney through the first hour did most of the speaking. The second hour was Officer Edwards And that uh, filmmaker that was embedded with the uh, Proud Boys, for the second hour, they secured the room. They said, no coming in, no coming out. And so, you know, that was just interesting that they just kind of locked us down for that part of the hearing.
1: Margaret?
4: So as we're talking about who was in the room uh, last night and who wasn't, I think it's important to remind our Georgia listeners about who decided to go and vote against the certification of Electoral College votes Mm. on January 6th after the riot, after the bloodshed happened. And those our representatives from Georgia who voted against the certification were Rick Allen, it was Buddy Carter, it was Andrew Clyde, it was Marjorie Taylor Greene, Jody Heiss, and Barry Loudermilk. Those are members of our Republican delegation who decided that they believed the big lie or they believed in the political expediency of the big lie and decided to, to join in, not in a violent way, but in an administrative way, to try and muck up the, the wheels of, of our democracy. I think it's important for everybody to understand that. Again, if we're going to use this analogy of, of a detective novel, um, it's very rare that uh, criminals actually go back to the scene of their crime. Um, I don't mean to say that those representatives are criminals, but it is very, very difficult for them to go back and hear the testimony after what they did as, as our representatives later on that night.
1: Uh, i got to get to a break um, uh, because I'm already late for it. But when we come back, I want to spend a few more minutes on this topic um, to ask the panel how they think this whole thing was, was uh, uh, received by viewers uh, last night and how they think it will impact uh, people's thinking about January 6th moving forward. We'll do that in just a minute. But uh, first, these messages.
2: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else.
1: Tia Mitchell, Margaret Coker, Jim Galloway, and Charlie Hazlett joined me for Political Rewind uh, today. Charlie Hazlett, I want to just ask you a couple of questions about optics, because I know as an old PR guy, you sent me a note saying as putting on your PR hat, you're going to be watching to see how they handled the hearing last night. And here's what I want to add, uh, put it in the, in, in the context of. I was a little, when, when I saw that they had brought in the, a former president of ABC News to help them figure out how to stage this first night of the hearings, how to use the video, how to stage the testimony. I was a little concerned that this might look artificial, that it might look like a produced package that, that would, would give uh, viewers the sense that this was just a partisan exercise. I have to say that didn't seem to me how it felt at all last night. It felt very straightforward. Uh, certainly they had a narrative. They had talking points that they stuck to, but at least it had an authenticity that personally I was glad to see, not because I'm a Democrat or a Republican, but because you never want congressional hearings to feel like they're the Benghazi hearing, strictly partisan affairs. Uh,
5: but true. And I will, um, you know, I, I had seen that same report on the, the bring it in the producer. Um I have found myself thinking over time and con- contrasting the the one six committee to the Mueller investigation, and Mueller was a by the book, old school, leak proof investigation, and it was it was easy to admire him for that. But he was he, he surrendered a huge part of the chessboard to Trump, who dominated the public conversation around that whole investigation and it was arguably pretty much forgotten within about a week after it came out the the one six committee even before the work of the of the abc news producer clearly was thinking about how to tell this story and as journalists and pr people in my case and others every once in a while or more often you probably care to admit you find yourself with a really big story with lots of moving parts and figuring out how to break it down and tell it, it takes some time and effort. And and I think we saw the the, the result of those advanced efforts last night. I think we've been watching it in the stories that have come out, the leaks um, and the, the work that's been done to advance that story and keep it in front of the American people.
2: Jim? Yeah yeah i I, I use a different prism than Charlie. Uh I was thinking of the Watergate hearings, and if if if, uh, if uh, well, I mean there are certain people on this panel who weren't old enough to to, to watch them, but, uh, <laughs> but 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 you got to I mean you have to remember that those hearings went on forever, and 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 they, they 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 kind of they 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 built the the drama built time after time after time, and you what emerged you had you had this kind of uh interesting emergence of a, of a of a a trusted narrator in the form of john dean who who, 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 who uh, he was uh, uh, nixon's lawyer who was in on everything and he finally spilled the beans and that became the riveting part of the uh, of the uh, of of the hearing and i'm wondering i i sat there last night i was wondering who's going to be the narrator of this one is it going to be Brad Raffensperger? And and, and I, uh, Tia, you correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think Raffensperger has actually agreed to appear yet. Uh, but should he should he agree to to to, to appear? I I, th- I think that he could be he, he could be that narrator uh, to 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 really put a face on uh, on on Trump's in Trump's uh, actual involvement in this.
3: I actually think Raffensperger and Gabe Sterling have agreed, um, so I think we will hear from them. Um, we don't know when there are three hearings next week, but I think and and Liz Cheney also mentioned that the pressure campaign will go into the fifth hearing. So you know we don't know when, um, but. I think we're going to hear from Raffensperger. We're going to hear from Gabe Sterling. We may hear from BJ Pack. I think it's pretty likely we will hear from BJ Pack as well.
1: All right. Let's, let's finish this off because there are a couple other subjects I really hope to take on today. Uh, Margaret, give us your sense of, you know, we have a new inflation report this morning. Inflation continues to go up. Republicans' narrative on this whole thing is this is a distraction from the real issues confronting the country, and uh, they'll continue to hammer away at that. And it is certainly true. There are considerably uh, difficult problems that Democrats are going to have to deal with as we move toward November. Um, So the question becomes, just from a political point of view, um, how does this maybe reset people's thinking about the fall election? Um, do you see it as having an impact on how people might choose to vote?
4: Well I think that um, I think that yes, it w- will impact some people's uh, votes come this fall. I hope that it encourages people that that they need to actually get out and vote rather than sit out on the sidelines of our democracy. I think that, we can all see what what the um, what the consequences are when we have close election results, uh, not only in Georgia but across America. Democracy is not a spectator sport, and people do need to get engaged, even if. They um, they're having trouble balancing their checkbooks at the end of every month. Even if they're having trouble um, with their children um, and the quality of education, it's especially when you have those troubles in your life that you need to get out and vote and find the people that you trust in order to really um, uh, authentically represent you and represent um, what you're going through in life. So. You know, the timing of, of any political theater, and, and let's be frank, this is political theater. It's historically valid and historically important political theater. But we do just for the sake of, of our country. We need to know what happened in those two months between uh, the November 20th, uh, 2020 elections and January 6th. Um, that is going to be important for all of us as we decide what kind of country we want to be. Um, you know, there is also this parallel effort at the Department of Justice, of course, to actually uh, go about and indict and, and try um, people who are responsible for fomenting violence. And so the timing of, of the hearings here are, are not going on in vacuum as much as some Republican voices would like us to believe. You know, the Department of Justice has been investigating for the last 18 months the individuals uh, among the, the Proud Boy and the Oath Keeper militias. There was originally, um, according to the DOJ's timeline, supposed to be a grand trial happening in April, which would have put these House hearings um, as sort of a, um, you know, a second uh, a second wave of, of information that was coming out about the days uh, and weeks prior to January 6th. That big trial has been pushed back to September. So when we move towards the elections, we're going to have the House hearings. Then we're going to have a huge trial. And I think that this is just not going to go away as much as many Republican leaders would like it to.
1: All right, let's do this. Um, We're we're going to be talking about the hearings for the next couple of weeks. The next hearing is Monday morning. It starts at uh, 10 a.m. GPB will cover it on all of its platforms as uh, we did last night. Um, But let's take a Our final break of the show now and uh, clear the table to talk about a couple of other uh, meaningful stories in political news. You're listening to Political Rewind. By the way, as we start our final segment, I want to make sure everybody knows where you can be reading. The people who are panelists on the show, of course, uh, you read Tia Mitchell at, uh, in the Atlanta journal Constitution at AJC.com. Uh, if you don't get the Dead Tree edition of the newspaper, Margaret Coker's publication, The Current, is at thecurrentga.org because it's a nonprofit uh, publication. And Charlie Hazelett, who I'm going to turn to now as we start another topic, is troubleingodscountry.com. Uh, Charlie, uh, you published a really uh, good blog in which you ask the question of whether the 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 urgent issues in rural Georgia will be addressed at all in the governor's uh, race. And you frame it around Stacey Abrams' uh, <laughs> really big gaffe in which she said Georgia's the worst state to live in, then tried to clarify the, uh, what she meant by that. Uh, you, in fact, looked at rural Georgia— and in your blog tell us that there are significant problems that do make it a very troubling place to be uh, right now. Um, Can I just tell you, just to start it off, you look at the 105 rural Georgia counties with populations of less than 35,000, and you say that these counties had an average 2020 per capita income of 39000 $27, 65% Twenty-seven dollars, sixty-five percent of the national average, and three thousand plus dollars less than Mississippi per capita income. In the other fifty-four Georgia counties, was 54%, uh, fifty-four percent. It was fifty-four thousand dollars. So that's just the beginning of data that you give us that shows us how uh, uh, bad things are for many people in rural Georgia. Talk to us about it, Charlie.
5: Uh, it's. Uh... Well, if uh, I could talk for hours, I will try to boil this down. I was, I, it was an inelegant way to put it, as Stacey Abrams later acknowledged, but I was glad to see her take that issue on. Uh, and this whole thing is fraught with, with various ironies. One is that Governor Kemp and Governor Deal before him reached really big PR bonanzas from these number one rankings Uh, as a place to do business from area development and I think one other site development publication. But you have to ask what goes into that ranking. And as nearly as I can determine, those rankings didn't start until Georgia's per capita income rankings fell off a cliff in the first decade of this century. Between 1980 and 2000, Georgia's per capita income rose from about 85% of the national average to 95% of the national average, and our rank among the states rose from 37th to 25th. By 2010, the PCI was back down in the, the mid-'80s uh, and uh, the national average, and our rank was back down to 41st, which was as low as it's been in the last half century. And those relatively low wages were one of the reasons that we started getting those number one rankings to do business. Area Development Magazine even says that. They have a panel of consultants that rank the state's, In 13 categories. One of those categories is called competitive labor market. And in that category, Georgia tied with Texas for number one. And the magazine said in part, quote, companies choosing locations in Georgia and Texas appreciate the fact that they both have wages below the average in more than half the other states. Duh. I want to guess where all those wages are. Rural Georgia which is overwhelmingly Republican Georgia. So Brian Kemp's number one place to do business ranking is predicated in part on the low wages earned by Republican voters in rural Georgia, who by the way are also going to be are significantly less well educated and live and live shorter lives uh, than than voters in in metro Atlanta frankly. I don't know if that makes rural Georgia the worst place to live in America but I, I was glad to see the debate joined, and it's going to be interesting to see how um, Stacey Abrams prosecutes it. It's it's not an easy story to tell, so that's my take.
1: Oh, okay. So um, here here's some interesting uh, aspects of that. I think um, Jim uh, Charlie points out these uh, these data come from. Rural Georgia, which votes overwhelmingly Republican, now we know Stacey Abrams clearly is is talking about health equities. She wants to expand Medicaid uh, to all. Uh, we know that she is very concerned about um, uh, uh, other aspects of of, of the health uh, uh, picture of Georgia, but. To what extent do you campaign on those issues in parts of the state that it's a given are likely to vote Republican? How many of those voters down there are going to be persuaded uh, by her arguments? And so, how does it rise up as an issue in the gubernatorial campaign?
2: Yeah, well, look, look, Stacey Abrams is not going to carry rural Georgia in November. I mean, let's let's we, we can get that we can get that out of the way here. But what we've had really since since two thousand two. You've, you've, you, 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 you've had Republicans going to rural Georgia and, and just absolutely ginning up the vote there, uh, you know, uh, getting 85, 90, 90 95% of, of the rural vote there to counteract what they're what they're losing in suburban Atlanta um, and, and other in uh, and, and suburbia uh, elsewhere in Augusta and Columbus and such. And so I think what she's trying to do, what she needs to do, she needs to to, to, to shave that, that that percentage down. She needs to get you know maybe 80 percent or 75 percent, uh, which would which would help her tremendously balance balance things out. And the, the, but the I, I hate to say it, but the the the, the I think the tenor the, the the situation that Charlie has described kind of mandates a certain tenor. In getting those rural voters to to the polls by of, of, of Republicans, and you use this is this has been this has been the rule since Gene Uh race race is the is the is the driver. Uh, if you can't if you can't promise someone a good uh, economy, you promise them a strong identity, and and that's where that's where I think we're going to see a, a huge race racial. Law, uh, 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 racial discussion going on uh, between now and November.
1: Uh, uh, Margaret, uh, you cover a lot of the areas that Charlie is talking about, and then I'd like to get Tia into this too. Margaret?
4: Yeah, the Abrams campaign uh, has always been, whether we're talking about the New Georgia Project or her own campaigns, it is to find the Georgians, the 48 to 48... of Georgians who never go vote to get them registered to vote and get them motivated to go vote. And South Georgia is full of those people as well. And South Georgia is full of black people as well. I mean, I agree with Jim's point that there's going to be a lot of identity politics that come into play this fall. But, you know, Senator Warnock's uh, family comes from Waynesboro. Um, The Stacey Abrams bus has been all over um, places in in our area in coastal Georgia, Uh, Ware County, Long County, Camden County. Valdosta, Thomasville. You know, if if the if the uh, agreed upon formula is that Democrats can win when thirty percent, twenty-eight to thirty percent of Black people in Georgia come out to vote, that I think is what the aim is. Um, it is to shave down the uh, the amount of percentages that Kemp or other Republicans will get in rural Georgia. And Stacey Abrams and Warnock are a very powerful combination to speak to people of of um, limited economic means. Um, limited i think education means and limited opportunities because they have come up from from communities like that themselves
1: tia
3: yeah and i was i'm glad um jim brought up the issue of race because i was going to say when we speak about rural voters in this way we are in general speaking about white rural voters um Mm -hmm. and so um which you know arguably most People who live in rural Georgia are white, but not all. We know Southwest Georgia in particular has a very um, high percentage of black residents in that rural pocket. So, um, but, so when we're talking about white rural voters, exactly what Jim said, it becomes about identity uh, often more than what actual policies would benefit them because we know that, uh, Rural voters could probably benefit from some Medicaid expansion that could improve health care in those pockets of the state that have lost hospitals and lost coverages, Um, not just on health care, jobs, the economy. You know, you'll hear rural voters talking about dying cities, but those same white rural voters May also feel that Stacey Abrams' policies are detrimental, and again, that comes to you know politics. I will also say that the news deserts that make rural voters you know not have great sources of news other than Fox News um, probably doesn't help with this conversation.
1: Um, Charlie, uh, let's look at the other side of this, Governor Kemp. Uh, will argue that he's uh, committed to expanding broadband across much uh, stretches of rural Georgia, which uh, uh, he says will be an enormous help uh, to the people there. Uh, he's giving pay raises uh, to teachers, although there's certainly a teacher problem in South Georgia, as there is in most of the state. And the economic development um, uh, uh, programs, proposals that have now be- uh, seen fruition, I mean, the, the new Hyundai Uh, plant that will go down uh, near Savannah, um, uh, Rivian, out in um, East Georgia. I mean, you talk about lower wages, but those are all things that Governor Kemp will run on if he wants to counter the narrative that uh, he's not doing anything for rural Georgia.
5: Uh, and, And he should, and he has demonstrated in the primary that he is fully capable of making a very effective, indeed, ruthless use of the powers of incumbency. And, uh, and he's going to be very tough to beat. I, I don't see how you can handicap the race and not have him as a significant favorite at this point. And, candidly, he deserves credit on those economic development wins. Georgia has a very strong economic development infrastructure, public and private sector, and Rivian and uh, Hyundai Aspen Arrow jails down in Bullock County those are big deals. They I mean I don't know what the state spent to get it uh, to get them, but it was probably worth it. Um, and those have the potential to be transformative economic development wins for their areas of the state and probably the state's
1: um, I We're going to post a, a link to Trouble in God's Country uh, so people can read uh, the, the rest of that blog because there's a lot of rich data in there that, that we aren't able to talk about on the air today. Um, we're almost out of time, Tia, but before we completely run out, I want to point out that uh, we know that two nights ago the House passed a series of gun safety uh, measures, one of which was Lucy McBath's uh, bill, Uh, red flag bill, which would uh, uh, make make it harder, which would uh, identify people with issues, uh, mental issues that should keep them from having uh, guns. Uh, That's one of her primary uh, missions in life, but it's going to go to the Senate and not get anywhere, right?
3: Well, actually, the red flag language is on the table in the Senate. Now, some other things that the House passed this week Doesn't seem to be getting any traction in the Senate, but red flag laws in some degree looks like it could make it into the Senate package.
1: We're going to watch for that because there's a I'm seeing there is a rebellion among some of the more conservative members of the Senate, Republicans in the Senate, who are pushing back on red flags. But I'm glad you point out that it is not a dead issue right now. Um, also, Democrats in Georgia are pushing Governor Kemp to hold a special session to take up gun, new gun laws. We know that certainly isn't going to happen. Um, we're completely out of time for today's show. Tia Mitchell. Uh, Margaret Coker from Chicago, my hometown. Thank you for being with us. Jim Galloway, Charlie Hazlett. Terrific conversation on an important day in politics. That's it for us uh, for today. We'll be back with a brand new show on Monday. I hope you all have wonderful weekends. By the way, Our best intern ever is heading back to school, and so we're going to lose her again. Uh, She's been with us before. We hope maybe someday after she graduates, she'll come back here and work with us full-time because we love having her part of Political Rewind. That's it for us for today. I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Please stay healthy. Bye, everybody.